Hi there everyone, I trust that you're doing really well and you're expectant to hear a powerful message today. I'm really excited because today we're resuming our Joburg Church services and uh, that's in Fairlands and it's 9.30am services. And then next week, 14th of March, we resume the Centurion services and that's at the Royal Elephant Hotel and that's a late service, it's 1130 a.m. as we've done before so that's really exciting and then of course we've got the Pretoria East Church uh, that's already started services and uh, if you're that side you can also go they meet at the Woodhill uh, shopping center so you can also partake of that service but God is doing exciting things in our midst it'll be just great to get back together again singing songs of worship and getting to meet each other and of course we'll be adhering to social distancing principles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is so powerful. We thank you for the transforming power of your word. And we open our hearts and we say, Holy Spirit, come. Come and teach us. Come and teach us your ways. Come and teach us your will. Come and teach us your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at inner conflict. In today's message, our focus is on me-you conflict. Me-you conflict. Essentially, we're talking about leveraging and resolving external conflict. The reality for many people is that because they do not know how to resolve conflict, a lot of time is wasted and they fail to get things done in their lives. Let's be honest. This affects all of us, doesn't it? Think of how much time is wasted at home and at work because of unresolved conflict. Let me ask you a question. What is your relationship with conflict? What difficult conversations do you need to have in order to advance action in your life? I believe that conflict is something we can leverage off. It's not always negative. It's not always something that we just have to manage, but we can actually grow in our relationships with people around us when we know how to leverage off conflict. It's not always a negative thing. But these are important questions to keep asking yourself. You know, research was carried out on marriages that were struggling. Some ended up in divorce and some survived. And you know what the common denominator was amongst those that survived? Guess what it was? They knew how to fight properly. See, sometimes we've got this thing where we think, oh, they've got a terrible marriage because they've got terrible issues. It's not always the case. It's not always the case. Sometimes people end up in a terrible marriage, in a terrible business partnership because they don't know how to fight properly. We've all got issues. The difference is, do you know how to resolve them? Or are you letting those issues stop you from getting important things done in your life? You see, in life, we cannot avoid conflict. So we need to know how to engage in effectively in conflict and also biblically, how to do it biblically. You see, if you examine the moments of conflict that you have with the people around you, you actually end up observing that they tend to fall into one or two categories with each person. So sometimes we think, I'm always fighting with people. I'm always having arguments. But if you drill it down, uh, you actually see that there are just one or two categories of conflict that you engage in. Right? And so our key focus in this message will be on identifying the various sources of conflict and establishing how to resolve what stems from them. So we're going to look at 10 reasons why people fight and what we can do about it. And I'm telling you, if you master this, if you master this, it will help you so, so much to actually end up getting things done in your life and not wasting a lot of time uh, with unnecessary conflict. Now, it's been found that employees in the United States um, have spent approximately, spent approximately 2.8 hours each week involved in conflict. This amounts to around 359 billion dollars US dollars in hours paid that are filled with and focused on conflict instead of positive productivity now this figure is the equivalent of 385 million days on the job going toward the goal of arguing as opposed to being put toward collaboration a full day of productivity each month this is two and a half weeks of productivity each year. Isn't that frightening? 
And it's the same throughout the world, isn't it? In South Africa, we know this, that hundreds of thousands of disputes are lodged at labor tribunals every single year. There's that strong adversarial relationship between managers and employees. We've seen this a lot. So much time is wasted fighting. Think of your everyday home life. Let me ask you this. How does conflict slow you down every day at home? How many times have you been late for work or late for school, your kids late for school because of fighting? How many times have you felt that you wasted a potentially productive week because of the fight you were having with your spouse? So here's my question to you. Are you able to have unfiltered conflict around ideas? One of the marks of a great team is unfiltered conflict around ideas. This is where you can disagree about something, engage in dialogue, and after the meeting, you're still best friends. No one takes it personally. Are you able to do that? Now, what does the Bible say about this? What's the kingdom culture that we should be aiming for when it comes to conflict? In Matthew 5, verse uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So that's our goal. We want to be peacemakers. And you know what? Sometimes you have to go through war to get to a place of peace. Okay? So it's not about being non-confrontational. Right? We're called to be peacemakers. Not necessarily peacekeepers, but peacemakers. In Ephesians 4, verses 3 to 6, the Bible says, Make every effort, that's every effort, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But what's the key thing here? Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Unity is so important. There's power in agreement and the enemy's strategy is to come and to divide. In fact, that's one of the meanings of the word uh, devil, diablos, the one who causes division, the one who comes and divides and disrupts. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 13 through to 18, it says, hold them in the highest regard in love. So that's speaking of honoring certain people because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter 3, 8 to 9, it says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, here's my question. What would your family look like? What would your church look like, your workplace look like, if everyone did what is stated in these passages above? Imagine that. Honor. No revenge. Constant rejoicing and prayer. Warning of those that are disruptive. Blessing people. Kind-heartedness. Complete patience. Imagine if that's what your life looked like. Well, the Bible is telling us that this is what we must strive for. We must do everything in our effort to keep that peace, to make that peace. Bible actually describes God as being that, right? The God of peace shall soon crush Satan underneath your feet. That's so powerful. He's the God of peace. Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace. So if we are God carriers, we are called to do the same thing. Some people find it a lot easier to deal with conflict than others. I've coached and counseled some people that are strong characters, but they really struggle when it comes to confronting an issue. I remember one lady who would call her husband Mr. Carpet because he would sweep things under the carpet. He hated conflict, despite the fact that he was a strong character. And some of you are like that. There's some people who've come from broken homes, and in their minds, they associate 
um, a, a, a conflict and arguing and confrontation with abandonment. And so as a result, some of them grow up just really being afraid of permanently altering a relationship through conflict. So do you know your default conflict handling style? Are you aware of what that is? Because when you study the default conflict handling style that you have, you start seeing that there are pros and cons to some of these things. And a, a very powerful model that I like is actually Thomas Kilman's model. And <clears throat> it's amazing because when you look through it, you start seeing that some people are strong avoiders. And so when it comes to avoiding, that's when you're uncooperative and you're unassertive. And this person neglects his or her own concerns as well as those of the other person by not raising or addressing the conflict issue. And that's not great. If you look in scripture, we're actually commanded to address issues. So those of you who think you love peace and you're a great peacemaker and so on, well, you have to be able to actually confront an issue in order to create peace. It's not always about avoiding. There's a place for avo avoiding. There's a place for picking your battles. And I'm not going to go deep into that today. But if you're an avoider, it's something to actually work on. The second type of style is when you're accommodating or obliging. This is where you're both cooperative and unassertive. right? So this is where you seek to satisfy the other person's concerns at the expense of your own concerns. And that's not always a good thing because sometimes resentment then builds up. The third one I want to talk about is the person who's dominating or competing in their style. This is where you're both, you, you're a kind of individual who's uncooperative and you're also assertive. This is the opposite of avoiding. This is where you use whatever seems appropriate to win your own position. So it's very much a win-lose mindset. The next one I want to look at is collaborating and integrating collaborating and integrating. This is where you're cooperative, but at the same time, you're also assertive. Now, remember when someone is assertive, they're basically saying, you know what, I'm going to stand up for my rights, but at the same time, I'm also going to listen to you because I respect you. Okay? That's the mindset of someone who's assertive. I'm going to do so respectfully. This is the opposite of avoiding in a sense also. So this is where you work with the other person to find a solution that fully satisfied, satisfies both of you, right? It satisfies your own concerns and those of the other person. And that's quite important, isn't it? Then there's compromising. And sometimes we have to be careful about compromising because I know everyone talks about, oh, compromise is great, compromise is great. But just be careful about this. I think collaboration is better because you see with compromise, this is what happens. It often ends up lose-lose and neither of you like the outcome of that. Okay, so it's an intermediate approach, right, in cooperativeness and also assertiveness. This is where you seek an expedient middle ground position that provides partial satisfaction for both parties. Ever had that where both of you compromise in terms of where you go for your holiday and then you get there and no one really enjoys it, right? Now, the thing to remember is that these styles work in some contexts but not in others. That's why it's important to view these things situationally, okay? So each approach has pros and cons. Now, it's important to understand that regardless of our different personalities and our different default styles, the Bible requires us to deal with conflict. And this is part of effective disciple-making. And I want to encourage you, reflect on your default style and look at what the pros and cons are of that. And then look through the lens of the Bible to see each time you're dealing with conflict, are you doing it God's way or not? There are times when you might need to be quite dominant because you have the information and other people don't. So you know you'll make the best decision. And there's a place for that. Example I often give is if you're the floor warden at work and you know the escape route, you're not going to ask everyone, what do you all think about this? Okay, You're going to come across quite authoritative, quite dominant, and you're going to say, this is the way, let's all go. Right? If you're a parent and you're dealing with a two-year-old, there are times when you might know what's best for your child. Okay, So you might have a dominant approach. 
There are other times where avoiding is appropriate, all right? When you have to pick your battles, when you realize I don't have energy for this. But some people use this as an excuse to avoid conflict because they just generally don't like conflict. Now, the Bible is clear. If we're going to make effective disciples, we need to train up people in dealing with conflict. If you look at Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, the Bible says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, you're going to have to confront. It says, go and show him his fault in, in private. So don't embarrass him, but show him his fault. Elsewhere, if you look in the book of Galatians, it talks about doing so gently, lest you fall into that same sin. Okay? So it says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. So that's our heart. We want to be winning back our brothers. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So don't be quick to believe a certain report if there aren't two or three witnesses. This is so important. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now people get so like, you know, fussy about this and, oh, you embarrassed me. Oh, the church now knows. Oh, this person confessed their sin in front of the church. What we do today is mild, mild in comparison to what Jesus actually taught. Today we've become so humanistic, even in the church. But here it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, That's biblical conflict resolution. Biblical conflict resolution. Now, when we identify the source of conflict, I believe it becomes a lot easier to resolve it. And this is such a powerful tool that I'm sharing with you today in terms of resolving conflict. When you understand where the conflict is actually coming from, it becomes easier to resolve it. So let's talk about why people fight and what we can actually do about it. The first category I want to talk about is power dynamics. Power dynamics. You see, people will fight because of status issues. Status issues. In Romans 12, verse 3, it says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In other words, don't be conceited, right? In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. It's interesting how conflict disappears when someone has a servant-hearted attitude. Have you noticed that? When people are humble, they're no longer asking questions like, why wasn't I asked first? Why was I overlooked? Why was I not given the best seat? It's amazing the things people fight about, right? It's status issues. Why did they choose him over me? These are all questions to do with status. We also see this in marriage a lot. Why did you serve the children before me? Why did you listen to your friend's advice and not mine? And we get very caught up in these things, right? Sometimes it's valid. But a lot of times it's because of our own ego and because of our own conceit. And it's so powerful when you can identify this as the source of conflict. Because then humility comes and you realize, you know what, it's because of my ego. And you humble yourself and you apologize. In James 2 verses 1 to 4 it says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's again to do with status. You look at certain people and you treat them differently because of uh, their position in life or their social status. You see, here's the thing. There's a place for concern about status and position, especially where there's been no regard for it. Especially where there's been no honor given where honor is due. When you can identify that this is the root cause of the conflict, it becomes easier to address it. So, for example, you can say to your spouse, honey, I now realize why I'm so upset. When you seek the counsel of your friends on your career matters without asking me about it, I feel isolated. 
I feel disrespected, especially since your decision is going to affect me. You see, you can appeal. You can share your needs with regards to your need for respect, your need for inclusion. That's different. Okay? We see Paul the Apostle having to reassert his status in this passage, and it's valid. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17, the Bible says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. You see, so when lines of authority are clear, then there's order. When there is disagreement with regards to status, there's chaos. So there's genuine God-given status. Paul, in this case, was their spiritual father. Paul was the person who was called to give those instructions in terms of, this is what I teach in all the churches. This is our approach. And when that's respected, there's flow. So he's asserting his need for the believers to yield to authority, whilst also recognizing God's overall authority and not abusing our status. This is so important. If you look in Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read from verses 1 through to 9. Just look at this in terms of order when it comes to godly status. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well for you and that you may have long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Can you see what's happening? We honor our fathers, but our fathers have a responsibility to not provoke children to wrath. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So, that's to do with status. That's to do with authority. Okay? And do this not only to please them while they are watching, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. So serve understanding that ultimately God is your boss, all right? Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters do the same for your slaves. So in other words, there's that accountability. You cannot abuse your authority, but we must recognize authority. Can you see that? Give up the use of threats because you know that he who... He who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. In the Old Testament, when there was a leadership vacuum and there was no king, it says that each person did what was right in their own eyes. We see that in Judges 21, verse 25. Sadly, some families are like this today. Okay, it's, it's, Is it clear in your family where the buck stops? Who the buck stops with? What is the status of your Bible? of the Bible in your household. So there's a place for status, but there's also the tendency to abuse status. And when we discover what's going on in our hearts, are we abusing status? Then we pray and we say, God, forgive me. God, cleanse me in this particular area. Are we in a situation where we're being disobedient to those who have authority over us? Then we repent. I'm telling you right now, this is the source of a lot of conflict. And when you deal with that, when you understand, wait a minute, this is your role as head of the household, right? Oh, okay, it's your role. It's not this person's role, right? The buck stops with this person, not that person. In a church setting, this is the person who's the visionary. He has that status, right? That's how it, how it works. When those things are clear, a lot of conflict goes away. In Proverbs 29, verse 18, in the NLT, it reads, When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild, but whoever obeys the law is joyful. Some translations say, where there is no vision, okay, people cast off restraint. Okay, people literally go wild. In the ESV it reads, where there is no prophetic vision, some translations say prophetic revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Now, under power dynamics, the second item I want to look at is resource allocation. 
This is the source of a lot of conflict. In Acts chapter 6 verse 1, the Bible says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, okay, those with the Greek, um, they had Greek influence, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So why was there fighting? Why was there arguments? All right? It was because of resource allocation. And when resources are not that plentiful and they're not in abundance, we tend to fight more. In fact, in organizations, it's been found that organizational politics increases when there's a limit to the resources available, right? Now, the sad thing is sometimes this limit is in our minds, isn't it? If you don't have an abundance mentality, you'll always be fighting over resources. In Philippians 2 verse 4, it says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So can you see everything changes in terms of conflict when my mindset is, has my brother got enough? Has my sister got enough? Have my kids got enough? But if each person is looking out for himself and their limited resources, people begin to fight. Marriages improve the moment we're delivered from selfishness. Marriages improve the moment we're delivered from selfishness. That's why the divorce rate is greatly reduced after seven years of marriage. Because often people realize, it's actually not about me. Okay, There's actually someone else. All right? Now, people realize this. So we need deliverance from selfishness and from envy. When we embrace the abundance mindset, we realize that there is enough for everyone. There is enough for everyone. We shift from that zero-based scarcity thinking and we end up embracing the abundance mentality. This is the mindset that understands that my gain does not mean your loss. My gain doesn't mean your loss. So important. Your loss doesn't mean my gain. We cannot have a zero-based mentality. And sometimes when I talk about power dynamics, what do I say? I say, you know what? The more power I give away, the more powerful I am because I'm surrounded by powerful people who help me to become more powerful. Okay? That's what's called the reciprocal nature of power. Some people have this mindset where they think, oh, if I've got 10 units of power and I give away two to someone who's got zero, they end up having two and I'm down to eight. If I give them another two, I'm down to six and they're up to four. I can't give them any more because they'll catch up to me doesn't work that way okay the more you give the more you get and this is the important uh, kingdom mentality this also happens in blended family scenarios you know very often there's often this assumption that oh if he has to go and love his other children he won't love my children you know uh, I see this when I counsel people you know that insecurity sometimes it comes even in the kids where kids are like oh daddy has now got this other baby and oh what am I going to do what am I going to do? Is he still going to love me? We see this happening a lot in families. Okay, He can love both of you. He can love all his children. What fights are increasing in your life because of the scarcity mentality? In what areas of your life has conflict increased because of envy within your heart? What would happen if you started to be grateful for all the good things you have access to? One of the causes of envy is the scarcity mentality. It's this mindset that says, I don't think there's enough for me. Oh, he's got this. Oh, the boss likes him. The boss can like both of you. The boss can like a hundred people. His gain is not your loss. His gain is not your loss. It's a mindset we need to have. The third one I want to look at is sectarianism. Sectarianism. This is basically the spirit of division. And there are power dynamics to do with this. And if you look at the example I've just given you in terms of the arguments between the, the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, there's a bit of sectarianism there, a bit of division there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, it says, You are still worldly. Why did he describe them as worldly? For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? And sometimes we see this in the church. There's jealousy, there's envy, there's quarreling, there's unnecessary conflict, there's the spirit of division where people are worldly. I'm talking about people who are strong in prayer meetings, people with spiritual gifts like the Corinthian church, right? And he unpacks it. Are you not acting like mere humans? Ladies and gentlemen, we are not called to act like mere humans. 
You can't keep saying, oh, but it's just human nature, pastor. Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? When one person says, oh, I prefer Pastor Paul, you know, oh, I prefer Pastor Stuart, oh, I prefer Pastor Michael, oh, I prefer Pastor Tracy, are you not immature? Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one will say, I, fo I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants. Only servants. What is Michael? What is Stuart? What is Paul? This Paul. What is Tracy? What is Wimbai? Only mere servants. Through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The moment you start using the language of, I prefer this one over this one, this one is better than this one, ladies and gentlemen, you are being worldly and it causes division. You see, and this is the same mindset, by the way, behind racism. It's the same mindset behind denominationalism. Our church is better, you know, um, and other sources of division. Okay, there is a pride that stems from thinking we are superior. And sadly, this is often due to subjective major measures. Have you noticed that? You know, how do you really measure who's better or what's better? People waste a lot of time arguing about which football team is better. Of course, you'll say yours because of various reasons. You prefer their style, okay? Some people prefer a team just because they score lots of goals. Others prefer it because it defends really well, all right? It's so subjective. Oh, my school is better than yours. My church is better than yours. That's to do with alignment of vision. You go to a church based on, well, what is God calling you to? And which place is going to help you to get there? That's one of the main reasons you go to a church. So to say mine is better than yours is ridiculous. All right. So Paul's goal, if you look at this narrative, is to actually downplay the servants of God. He says we are nothing and to emphasize who God is and God's power. Years ago, I learned a particular principle from a book I was reading by uh, Jack Hayford. And um, he said this, you do not have to compare in order to commend. You do not have to compare in order to commend. In other words, I don't have to say, you're the best singer in the choir, when I can just say, I'm very blessed by your voice. Because if I say in front of everyone else, you're the best, how does everyone else feel? Okay? I don't have to say, uh, you're the most generous person I've met, when I can just say, I'm so blessed by your generosity. Do you see that? That is, that is so powerful. A lot of people use comparisons. And when you do that, you're being like mere humans. You're being worldly. It's a sign of worldliness, okay? Well, being worldly is not just about illicit partying out there. Being worldly is about these sectarian attitudes that creep into the church. And if that's you, please repent of that. It needs to be uprooted. So the first category we looked at was power dynamics. And now I'm going to continue with the fourth item. We're now looking at the second category of sources of conflict, interpersonal dynamics interpersonal dynamics and the fourth item is basically communication style communication style you see sometimes you can be moving in the same direction as someone but you struggle with their tone of voice you struggle with their choice of words and each of us are sensitive to different things okay it's a type of interpersonal conflict isn't it in proverbs chapter 12 verse 18 the bible says there is one who speaks rashly like uh, the thrusts of a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So how you speak to each other can help you when it comes to conflict. That's why a lot of times people will say, I don't have a problem with what he said. It's how he said it. And a lot of people are too lazy to learn different ways of speaking, different ways of communicating. James chapter 1 verses 19 to 20. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger 
For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If you're that kind of person who likes to control people with your anger, because, you know, maybe when you were growing up, you'd always have temper tantrums and people would listen to you. And now you've learned that as an adult. Hey, I can do the same. You know, don't do it. Stop doing it. Because the Bible says man's anger doesn't achieve or accomplish the righteousness of God. If you want God's righteousness to be established, don't use anger to control people. Bible says we must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's one of the reasons I'm passionate about teaching around some of these things. Listening skills, question asking skills. More and more I'm finding that I'm counseling people around anger in marriage and how to uproot it and how to deal with it. How do you deal with your own anger? How do you deal with other people's anger? Okay, this is so important. This is how we unpack these scriptures. It's not just about, oh Lord, help me to be slow with anger, slow to anger, slow to anger. No, renew your mind around these things and figure out why do I get triggered? What's the cause of that trigger? Okay, Ephesians 4, 29 says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Ask yourself, each time you speak, is it edifying? In other words, is it useful? Is it helpful, what I'm about to say? Is it ministering to someone according to the need of the moment? So is it necessary? Is it relevant? Okay. Is it giving grace to the people who hear? Sometimes we speak and speak and speak, but it doesn't impart grace. In Proverbs 15, verse 1, the Bible says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. These are principles we need to be applying when it comes to resolving conflict. Okay. Ephesians 4 verse 26, it says, be angry and yet do not sin. So don't let your anger end up in sin. Then it goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, resolve it there that same day. One of the principles my wife and I have in our rules of engagement is if there's an issue, we mustn't allow it to linger. We must deal with it in this, on the same day. Because if you let something linger, what happens? The next day you bring it up or the next week you bring it up and the person is forgotten. They're like, did I say that? And now the feedback you're trying to give them is not really relevant. It's not useful. Okay. And what happens if you allow anger to keep stirring within you? You become resentful. Your resentment becomes bitterness. The Bible tells us that bitterness defiles bitterness defiles and you end up doing things you'd never have dreamt of doing that's why there are a lot of crimes of passion where people who love each other dearly and sincerely end up killing each other very often it's because they didn't know how to resolve conflict in romans 12 verses 17 through to 21 it says never pay back evil for evil to anyone in other words no revenge respect what is right in the sight of all men if possible so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So sometimes it doesn't depend on you. Sometimes there are people who are troublemakers and it's now beyond your control, right? But it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So peace is important. Peace is important. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go deep into that, but there is that place where we leave room for the wrath of God in certain situations, okay? But the default of the New Testament believer is to cry out for God's mercy. The Bible says, pray for those that hurt you. Do good to those that persecute you, all right? But in Romans, it's saying, leave room for the wrath of God and don't take your own, don't take, uh, your own revenge, all right? Uh, at a certain point, we'll be teaching on imprecatory prayer. Uh, that's prayers of judgment. We'll be teaching what's the place for that in the New Testament, okay? And we'll be putting out a position paper with guidelines with regards to that, all right? Because there are a lot of people who abuse it. A lot of people aren't aware of what they're doing when they do do it. And uh, they don't know the consequences of imprecatory prayers, all right? They just say, oh, David did it in the book of Psalms, therefore I can do it now. All right, but there are guidelines around them. There are certain people who should be doing them, certain people shouldn't be doing them, and we're going to teach on that. But don't do it if you haven't studied it and if you're not sure how to do it. Right? A lot of conflict occurs when someone is attempting to punish another person. Have you noticed that? 
and we have subtle ways of punishing our bosses or punishing our spouses. For example, some people will punish other people by withdrawing emotionally or stonewalling, you know, giving people the silent treatment. That's a form of punishment. That's interpersonal conflict. That's a communication style. That's manipulation. You see, a lot of interpersonal conflict stems from unresolved heart issues. In James 3:16, it says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So when there's disorder, when there's constant arguing and fighting and every evil practice, what's at the root of it? It's a heart issue. Envy and selfish ambition. If you're the kind of person who's always fighting with people around you, maybe search your heart and say, is there envy? Is there selfish ambition? Beware of fights that you make up in your own head because of your own internal battles and your low self-esteem. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we do that. If you feel unwanted, then what happens? Everyone around you becomes a persecutor. But it's really your own rejection issue. Okay? We reinterpret our external world to line up with our internal mess. That's what I've found. You will reinterpret your external environment to line up with your internal mess. I want to encourage you with regards to interpersonal conflict, create rules of engagement for conflict that are based on the word of God. Okay. For example, is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? These are key questions to ask before you say something. We've started using that with our kids. Hey guys, is it kind? What you've just said, is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it actually truthful? All right. Some of the rules of engagement we've got in our marriage, for example, is avoid using superlatives. For example, saying things like, you always do this, you never do this. Because the other person will just turn around and say, never, never. What about the other day? Okay. Don't raise your voice. Don't raise your voice. Sometimes we've got very valid things we want to communicate to the other person, but we're screaming at the person. We're shouting at the person. And a lot of times we're in denial about it. I know sometimes my wife will say, my love, you're raising your voice. You don't need to raise your voice. And I'm thinking, no, I'm just passionate. You know, I'm not really raising my voice. I'm just passionate. Sometimes emotion is okay. So be aware, not just of how you're feeling, but the impact it has on the other person. Another thing in our rule of engagements is don't leave it until a future, future date unless you've agreed to do so. Because if you just sweep it under the carpet, guess what? You won't want to revisit it because you'll say, oh, I don't want to bring up that thing. Then we'll have an argument. Okay? Don't bring up unrelated issues that have got nothing to do with what you're discussing. Sometimes when I'm having an argument with my wife, we'll be talking, talking, talking. I bring up something else. Then she'll say to me, oh, are we now discussing this? Okay, let's just press pause on that because that's not the matter right? Let's focus on this particular issue. So you put it in the parking lot and you discuss it separately, okay? Don't walk out of the conversation. Don't walk out in a conversation uh, unless a boundary has been violated, right? So ladies, if you've got a guy trying to beat you up or something like that, okay, you need to get out of that environment, right? You need to get out of that environment. Um, uh, or gentlemen, if you've got a lady trying to beat you up. I remember counseling a couple once. The lady was quite... Um, quite big, beautiful lady, uh, large frame. And the guy was skinny, skinny, skinny. And they started talking about the domestic violence that they would experience. And I said, like, guys, when you guys fight, who wins? And the guy just looked and he says, well, I mean, you can see, you know. So it's not just, it's not always the guy on the girl. It can also be the other way around, right? Now, here's the thing. Are you aware of your style of relating? Are you aware of your communication style? Do, do you have very personable approaches in terms of how you communicate or are you impersonal? And how you speak to other people around you, is it contributing to the relationship or is it contaminating the relationship? Is it helping the relationship or is it harming the relationship? These are real things that we need to talk about. Another reason why people struggle when it comes to conflict, a major source of conflict, which falls under this particular category of interpersonal dynamics, is rigidity and inflexibility. Rigidity and inflexibility. Sometimes I've had conversations with my wife and I'll say to her, do you know why this is so peaceful, this aspect of your life, my love? It's because I'm super flexible. And I know I am actually because I've done, um, there's a particular profile, you know, these personality tests and so on. And I'm like 100% when it comes to flexibility. Okay. And so I say that to my wife just to fish, you know, 
for a few points and then she says it's so true my love it's so so true i said you know that with other husbands hey you know they're not that flexible about this and this and this yes it's so true my love it's so true that's what she says back to me okay rigidity is the inability to be bent to be adapted or to be changed and uh, recent research has actually found that this is one of the main reasons that leaders fail they were too rigid they were too rigid you see the rigid person struggles to adapt to different people and this is really central to emotional intelligence isn't it being able to adapt and connect as opposed to saying it's my way or the highway shape up or ship out right now here's the thing to realize not everyone is like you and they're quicker that you embrace that truth that not everyone is like me right the quicker you embrace that truth and start to celebrate other people's uniqueness other people's proclivities and anecdotal behavior, then the quicker you find peace within yourself. You see, look at how Jesus dealt with Nathaniel. Do you remember in John 1, 45 to 47, you know, uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? And Jesus wasn't offended by, by this prejudice. Jesus knew that this was this person's outlook, that he was prejudiced in this particular way, but he actually celebrated Nathaniel's personality. When he finally met with Nathaniel, he says, you know what? Here's a true Israelite in whom there's no guile. There's no deceit in this person. In other words, hey, I like this guy. Jesus saw the treasure in Nathaniel. He wasn't rigid. Oh, how can you think that about people from Nazareth? Why are you looking down on Nazareth? Okay. And here's the principle. Here's the principle. Your maturity will be seen in your ability to handle other people's immaturity. Your maturity will be seen in your ability to handle other people's immaturity. This is so important. You see, you will always end up in conflict with other people if you're always in reaction mode, if you're always being triggered by, oh, this person said this to me. Oh, this person views those people this way. No, we need to mature. We need to grow up. We need to see the treasure in people. Very often when people manifest a weakness, it's really a strength that's been overused. And Jesus saw this in Nathaniel. He saw that this guy is honest. This guy is transparent. I like this. This is the spirit of truth. He's speaking his mind. And as time went by, I'm sure Jesus would have challenged that mentality just by his lifestyle. He would have shown Nathaniel that, you know what, there's good stuff that comes from Nazareth, right? So leveraging off your differences and celebrating them is so key. It's so key. Some people are rigid in their outlook, so everything is black-white either or it's polarized you know you have savers and you have spenders you have night owls and you have early birds but you know that the early bird can celebrate the night owl instead of just trying to show them that being an early bird is better the night owl can look at the benefits of being married to the early bird you've got high justice people and you've got high mercy people and the high mercy people can look at the justice people and say, I'm really glad that you went out and you confronted that situation because sometimes I'm a bit of a doormat. I've dealt with couples where they're the opposites. They're opposites when it comes to these kinds of things. But the power is being able to celebrate these things. You know, you might complain about long-winded people, but you know that there's some people who actually would say to me, Paul, I just wish my husband could talk. Paul, I just wish my husband could talk and tap into his emotions. And they would rather have someone who talks and is long-winded than someone who's completely silent. So be grateful that you've got a spouse who, yes, they're long-winded and it's annoying, but at least they talk. Okay, let's see the treasure in people. And I'm telling you, it will resolve a lot of the conflict that we have in our lives. You see, when we learn to celebrate what the other person brings to the relationship or the team, there's a reduction of unnecessary conflict. Sadly, in a lot of marriages, the quality that your person used to celebrate is now the thing they find most irritating. Have you noticed that? Okay. Begin to thank God for that quality and see what happens. You get what you appreciate. I always say that. You know, it's so important to create a non-polarized approach that celebrates and leverages off differences. You know, diversity is not a negative thing. Let me ask you this question. What do you need to start celebrating in others around you that is different to how you are wired? What do you need to start celebrating in other people around you that's different to how you are wired? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through to 
14, it says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its, par- but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we, are, we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And that's where the church matures. When we see that, we have many parts and the parts are not the same. And we need to celebrate the different parts. The third category I want to look at with you today is roles, roles, roles. You see, there's a lot of conflict that comes in this particular area of roles. So number six, we're looking at role interdependency. This is where you're expecting something from someone because of their role, but they fail to deliver. And the question I want to ask you is, is the person's role clear? Even when it comes to spouses, even when it comes to parent-child relationships, is the person's role clear? Are you fighting with your child because they didn't do something, but it's something that a child shouldn't be doing? It's actually the role of your husband. It's actually the role of your wife. Is the person's role clear? Have you been clear about your expectations? Have you previously given them clear feedback on their performance or their delivery? Are they aware of the consequences of non-delivery? Do they know how important this thing is to you? These questions are crucial. I've seen that um, with couples, there's often an expectation that one spouse should just know and just understand, okay? I've been in situations where someone makes a suggestion very lightly, right? But then when I fail to deliver, I realize that, wait a minute, their desire for that particular outcome was actually much more intense than how they had communicated. Have you ever been in that situation? Are you the kind of person who says, I wouldn't mind if you join me, when you really mean it would really make my day if you join me? You see, we have to learn to be emotionally honest. Otherwise, when it comes to role interdependency, there'll always be conflict. There'll always be conflict. Sometimes when there are a lot of fights due to role interdependency, it's a sign of lack of planning. It's a sign of lack of communication around those particular roles. Maybe you've been going with the flow for too long and now you need deeper clarity. Role ambiguity is not pleasant, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe you need to schedule things a lot more so that no one feels like they're being taken advantage of. You know, in Paul's ministry, he certainly had this, hey? He had expectations of his fellow team members, but sometimes these expectations were not fulfilled. And you sort of wonder when you read some of the passages, you wonder how clear the communication had been. I want to show you one of these uh, passages. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read from verses 9 through to 16. It says, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I wonder whether Mark knew that, okay? I sent uh, Tachycus to Ephesus. When you come, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Okay, that's an imprecatory uh, prayer or he basically handed him over to the Lord. You know, God, you deal with this person, okay? You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. It's interesting how his approach was different with this metal worker who was against the gospel message, okay? Uh, Yet with others, he actually said, have mercy on them. May God not count it against them, okay? Um, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me may it not be held against them, okay? So with them, he cries out for mercy, which is interesting. But can you see that these were all role expectations? And I wonder how clearly Paul had communicated these role expectations. But conflict can arise when you expect something from someone, but they don't deliver. The seventh one we're going to talk about is reciprocal mutuality. 
what I call reciprocal mutuality. In Romans chapter 1, 11 to 12, it says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That's mutuality. Paul here had an expectation that, hey, I'm going to impart a spiritual gift to you or some spiritual gift to you, but I also want to be encouraged by you. Mutuality in relationships is a natural thing that God built into us. Okay, You see how Paul the, Paul the Apostle desired it. In 2 Corinthians 6, 11 to 15, it says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. I want to say to you, there's nothing wrong with seeking mutuality in a relationship. I found that often we struggle with this because our mindset is, but you know what? Jesus first loved us before we loved him. That wasn't mutual. But guess what? He has the expectation that we remain in his love. He has the expectation that we follow him. He has the expectation that we leave behind all else and we pursue him. He has that expectation. And just because Jesus loves us doesn't necessarily mean we'll go to heaven. Okay? There are things we also need to do. This is so crucial. And so sometimes when we're doing premarital counseling, we like to explore that. Is this relationship mutual or is it not? And that's why there's that concept, he just ain't into you. Because you are loving, 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 but there's nothing coming back. And that's a major source of conflict. I counsel lots of people and you see this coming up that, oh, is this why you're feeling resentful? Is this why there's this conflict? Because you feel you've sacrificed so much, but the other person, it would be nice if they could sacrifice a bit. Okay? So it's important to be able to identify it, okay, this lack of mutuality in relationships, and to articulate it, okay, if it's a source of conflict. There's such a breakthrough that comes when you're able to actually do this. In Matthew 7, verses 21 through to 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So there's that expectation for our part. Okay? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He loved us first, but he expects us to also uh, express love toward him. So when we talk about mutuality, we're talking about a number of things. We're talking about mutual love. All right. I love you. I also expect you to love me. All right. We're talking about mutual trust. Hey, how come I trust you, but you don't seem to trust me? This is important for a relationship to be sustainable. Right. We're talking about mutual sacrifice. I'm sacrificing. I'm hoping you're going to do the same too. We're talking about mutual respect. I respect you. I'm hoping you also respect me. If these things are not there in relationships, you end up with problems. And the final category I want to look at with you today is direction and approach. Direction and approach. This is a major source of conflict. And we're going to look at the eighth source of conflict, which is methodology. You see, not everything is on 100%. And I keep saying this. You see, oftentimes parents clash with their kids over methodology. Have you noticed that? Hey, son, I want you to go and shower now. But your son is walking up to shower, but very, very slowly. Don't make that a big issue. Don't make it a crisis. What actually often happens is that parents clash with their kids on minor issues, methodology issues, okay, the how, the approach. And as a result of clashing on the small issues, guess what? They block the relationship when it comes to the big issues of life. So watch out for that, you see. Now, learn to pick your battles. Learn to pick your battles. When you clash over methodology, ask yourself whether it is really vital that things are done your way. Look at how Paul, just look, look how Paul addresses this issue of approach. In Philippians 1, verses 15 through to 18, he says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. That's their approach, right? Not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing, so he clearly defined what the important thing was. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. He had mastered the art of picking his battles. He had mastered the art of keeping the main thing the main thing and still rejoicing. Remember, in Philipp Philippians is a prison epistle. He wrote this while he was in prison and he was rejoicing because the gospel was being preached. Okay? Sometimes methodology is important. Sometimes we have a discussion and we're saying we both want to go to Cape Town. Okay? That's the goal. We've got the same goal. You want to fly, I want to drive. And then you have to engage with each other with regards to that. And it's important to know that it's the methodology that, that's different, not the whole goal. Why? You're able to emphasize and say, we're on the same side here. We both have the same goal. We both want to go to Cape Town, don't we? It's just the how. And then you're able to tone things down because it's just the how. The ninth source of conflict I want to talk about is where there's a conflict with regards to the goals. You see, anger is often due to blocked goals. We get angry and we fight when our goals have been blocked. Sometimes it's because we're not explicit about our goals. Let's be honest. If we had been explicit, then often there would be alignment. So it's important to remind ourselves in conflict that we are on the same team and to keep the main thing the main thing. It's important to ensure that before you uh, get into a church, for example, or a business partnership or a marriage, you establish goal and vision alignment. So important. Okay. If you're not aligned, this can become a source of conflict. Right. You know, sometimes it's okay to say to a pastor, you know what, I'm going to go and do my own thing. You know, I'm going to go and do something different because I've realized that these were my goals, but I'm seeing, I've studied the vision and mission of this church. You guys are going in a different direction. It's better to do that, right, uh, than to always be in conflict around the vision because you're not the visionary, right? For example, with our church, there's a way we are going. We want to disciple nations. A lot of our messages will be to equip people to make disciples. They won't always be bless me messages. If you want bless me messages every Sunday, you won't be satisfied, right? So it's important to understand that and then to know that, hey, when we are aligned with each other in terms of vision, in terms of goals, it's amazing what then happens. There's peace. In Amos 3 verse 3, it says, do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so, Okay. What's the nature of that agreement? Hey, we're going in the same direction, aren't we? So we can escort each other. Okay, let's do so. Because our vision is the same. The goals are the same. Articulate your goals clearly. The tenth and final source of conflict I want to look at is philosophical conflict. It's to do with your philosophy. See, this can be seen morally. It can be seen theologically. It can be seen in terms of your ecclesiology. It can be seen in terms of your eschatological thinking, in terms of your belief about end times. And I can go on and on and on, right? You know what I've learned? My position on a number of things has actually shifted after I've taken time to study that particular area. You see, it's so sad how we sometimes divide over things that should not divide us. There are many great men and women of God where I've, I've really learned from them because of their strong theological background, their strong theological framework. I've learned a lot from them. But you know what? We might still differ when it comes to our expression of worship. I may have a charismatic expression of worship. They may be more, um, more traditional in the expression of worship. And that's also okay. My background spiritually, I mean, I've, I've been involved in different church backgrounds and I'm so grateful for that heritage that I have because I can see why certain movements do certain things. And I'm like, okay, I see where they're coming from. But some people are so rigid when it comes to these things and they're always arguing. Do you remember when Paul instructs Timothy and he says, hey, encourage these people to move away from these old wife tales he talks about, right? Move away from these things. They just cause division and they don't bring peace. In Romans 14, verse, I'm going to read from verses 4 to 6. It says, who are you to judge someone else's servant to their own master? servants stand or fall. In other words, God will be their judge, right? 
and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, each of them should know what they believe and why. Each of them should have studied the particular thing and know why they're doing it. But let's not have arguments now. Oh, because this one really upholds the Sabbath and does it strictly in this particular way. And these people see every day like a Sabbath and so on. Don't get caught up in that. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. So make sure you're glorifying God, whatever your stance is. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. These are things people fight about. And Paul is addressing this with the Romans, right? With the church at Rome. In, in the book of Ephesians 4.13, it says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Can you see what's happening? Our goal is to reach unity of faith in Christ, not the unity of your pet hobby horse doctrinal preferences. This is so important. I trust that you've been blessed. I trust that you've been equipped. I encourage you to keep going through these particular messages and make sure they get into your inner person and that you live in peace all your days. Let's pray. Father, I speak blessing over all those who are listening to this message. And I pray, Father, that nothing of this message will be robbed from the people of God. I pray, Father, for peace in our relationships. I pray that you help us to confront where we need to confront and to do it your way. We commit ourselves to you and we say, have your way in our lives. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Join us for our services as they resume. Would love to see you again. God bless you. I encourage you to keep giving, to keep sowing into the kingdom faithfully. And let's honor God and glorify him in all our relating to each other. Amen.